This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. There's a good chance that over the past three years, you've had a telehealth medical appointment, like Melanie Knapp in Tallahassee, Florida. I did go see her in person a couple of weeks ago, and then she ordered some labs. And now we're having a follow-up visit by telemed to discuss the results of my lab. And I love it. We both love it. It works really great, this kind of a hybrid-type service. And uh, it saves me a lot of time, too, because uh, she's a 45-minute drive away. And she's way on the other side of town. Or like Sean in Columbus, Ohio. I'm able to meet with my doctor via voice message, via video chat, via um, messaging through the system that they have with the provider. Um, And honestly, I I don't feel like it's changed at all since uh, the main health crisis of the pandemic has closed. Then there's Kaylee Yacono. She works in the film industry in Atlanta, Georgia, and likes the flexibility. Given my often unpredictable schedule and the long hours I work, the ability to do telehealth appointments has vastly improved my access to treatment. Before telehealth, I would have to call in a replacement or miss work and even postpone doctor's visits until after job wrapped. Now all I have to do usually to meet with my doctor is step off set or call in my lunch break. Well, those are just a few of the On Point listeners who reached out to us when we said we were going to do an hour about telehealth, which makes sense because demand for telehealth surged due to the COVID pandemic. In 2021, 37% of U.S. adults, more than one-third, had used telemedicine in the past 12 months, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Federal and state governments, hospital systems, doctors, and nurses had mobilized to help people stuck at home get medical care. And usage rates remain high. Telehealth usage is still 65% higher than it was prior to the pandemic. However, its growth has stalled. The federal government will soon declare an end to the pandemic public health emergency, leaving states to figure out what aspects of telemedicine will remain permanent and how insurers will pay for it. And that leaves the future of this sudden revolution in patient care very uncertain, depending on where you live. Because currently, some 29 states don't explicitly require insurance companies to reimburse doctors at the same rate for all telehealth appointments as they do for in-person appointments, according to the Center for Connected Health Policy. Well, May Kwong is the executive director for the Center for Connected Health Policy, and she joins us today. May, welcome. Thank you for having me. You know, before the pandemic, um, there, of course, was some form or forms of virtual medicine being practiced, but it really seemed as if it was the pandemic that led it to a nationwide blossoming. But can you describe sort of what the lay of the land was uh, before early 2020 when it comes to telemedicine? Um, Before the pandemic, telehealth was being utilized, but it was a fairly niche area of the healthcare delivery system. Um, While it was being used and it's been in use for decades, it was pretty, pretty limited. And that's partly due to in years past because the technology may not have developed to the point where people were comfortable using it. Um, That changed over the last couple of years because technology has evolved pretty rapidly. 
But other reasons were the policy landscape itself didn't really encourage the use of telehealth. And by that, I mean what you touched upon in your introduction, that there may be limitations on what would have been covered if you used telehealth and limitations on what would have been paid for if telehealth was used to deliver a service. Yeah. So, I mean, we will talk in extensive detail about that because, you know, in, in this country, it always comes down to coverage and insurance when um, we're talking about health care. But I, I wonder, was there also pre-pandemic, was there also a sense that maybe there would be um, patient uncertainty or pa- patient hesitation um, to use telemedicine? There was some of that, but actually there was probably more, what was more of an impediment was that patients didn't even really know telehealth existed, that it was an option that they could use. A really good example of that is before the pandemic, I've been doing telehealth policy for almost 10 years, and I had family members and friends still confused as to exactly what I did for a living. So I think they were probably like a lot of people out there in the United States. They just really did not know what telehealth was, that it was an option, that it was a way that they could receive services. You know, as I said earlier, it was a pretty niche area of the healthcare system. So you really did not have either insurance companies or healthcare providers really explaining to patients like, hey, there's this other option in a way you can receive services. So the the knowledge base of the the general public was pretty limited on what telehealth was. So mm. that didn't really create a demand for it for you know providers to like turn to and look at it as a way to provide services for their patients. Yeah. Well, so, um, of course, the irony is that sometimes it's a crisis, right, that creates the opportunity to scale potentially beneficial uh, new technologies or ideas a- across um, a system, and particularly in healthcare, which is what we had. Um with the pandemic. So how would you describe sort of the what seemed like the almost overnight change in the use of telehealth uh, in this country in you know early to mid 2020? It definitely was a significant change. Um, tsunami may not be an exaggeration on that. I, I remember when the, the pandemic was first declared and it first started, there was this almost immediate pivot not only by healthcare systems, but you had governments that had to pivot as well, because as I said earlier, the policy landscape was really not set up for telehealth to be used widely. There were limitations on it. So you had governments, both on the federal and the state level, that had to shift immediately and make, at the very least, temporary changes to allow telehealth to be used more widely. So first you had that level of governments needing to change the policies to allow it to be used, then you had all these healthcare providers who either didn't use it before or used it in a very limited fashion who suddenly had to implement it within within their organizations in order to provide services to the patients and then you had to educate this wide the general population on hey here's another way yet you can receive services and that probably was one of the more difficult aspects it's like changing somebody's um what they're used to and how they receive healthcare services. We're all used to going to a brick and mortar location to receive our healthcare and suddenly being told, no, you can do it now over your, your laptop over video Mm -hmm. or, Oh, we can do it over the phone. That required a significant shift for most of the population to, to only learn about it. 
Um, as a yeah. we're a telehealth resource center at CCHP, and that means we field calls for people who have questions around primary telehealth policy or telehealth in general. And usually they come from healthcare providers, like where do I get started? What does this law mean to me, et cetera, or lawmakers or health plans. But when the pandemic started, we saw an influx of just everyday consumers, everyday patients say, what is this telehealth? How can I access it? So there was that definite sort of lack of awareness and education for the general public, and they really needed to be rapidly brought up to speed. So there was right. a lot of levels where there are a lot of changes needed to be made. Yeah, I'll, I'll just you know share my my n equals one personal experience. And at first, I was like, "Huh," um, but then I realized that it was it would actually let me access uh, healthcare in a time where it was quite difficult to do so. But for primary care and and things like that. But there are also like other uh, other. Um, uh, visits that I would still want to do in person. So it's it, it, it's a we'll talk a little bit more later about the uh, the sort of variety of the uses of telemedicine. But um, May, tell me a little bit more about what you said about those policy changes. So did the uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that the federal government did something rather important in terms of during the pandemic emergency period. Did the federal government? require all insurers or just Medicare and Medicaid to pay equally for telemedicine as it would for in-person visits? So if you're talking about the federal government, the significant change they did in response to the pandemic and telehealth policy was to change Medicare policy and basically remove some of the limitations that were on telehealth in the Medicare program. Um, If you're talking about commercial payers in general, that's actually on the states to decide how to do that. Mm -hmm. And each state has a different approach to it or different laws or different regulations that impact it. Now, a lot of states, um, a couple of states had in their statutes already a law that said health plans would need to pay for the same amount for telehealth delivered services as they would have in person. But there were only a handful of states um, and then so it kind of became a little bit more open, a little bit more uh, widespread during, in response to the pandemic, uh, at least on a temporary basis. However, I will say that, you know, to the credit of a lot of health plans, they a lot of them did make that decision on their own response to the pandemic without waiting to be told by any type of regulatory agency of like, you need to do this for during during this emergency crisis here. So it was on a couple of different levels. You had the federal government opening up Medicare, which was very important, states doing things as well, but also I think some health plans taking the initiative too. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have about 30 seconds then um, before we have to take our first break, May. Um, how would you describe the sort of patchwork now? Is there a lot of uncertainty in, cert- in some states about if uh, telehealth med- uh, care is going to kind of remain or continue to grow? Actually, a lot of states have already made their decisions on what their policies are going to be in a post-pandemic environment. So not necessarily uncertainty, but definitely like vast differences between states. Okay. So when we come back, we're going to um, focus in particular on one state that's going through this decision-making process about telehealth uh, right now. That would be Nebraska. And so folks, also, if if you are on Facebook or Twitter, just hop on over to um, On Point Radio and let us know what 
you think about telemedicine, telehealth, if you're a patient or a practitioner? Uh, do you want it to stay? Do you want it to expand? What are your concerns about it? Again, we're at On Point Me- uh, Radio on uh, Facebook or Twitter, and we'll be right back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about telehealth or telemedicine and the rapid change that telehealth uh, underwent due to the COVID pandemic, the rapid expansion of this way of accessing healthcare in the United States, and what might happen sort of state to state now that uh, the pandemic uh, public health emergency is winding down. Telehealth is definitely here to stay, but the question is, it might matter how much you can use it depending on where you are in this country. Now, we had, I had said earlier that uh, we talked to On Point listeners last last week about uh, the fact that we're going to be doing this show, and we got a lot of response from folks. So here's Alyssa Watts, who's in Madison, Wisconsin, and she left us a message on the On Point Vox Pop app. And Alyssa told us that six weeks after she gave birth to her daughter, she began experiencing postpartum depression, anxiety, and severe panic attacks. I had my six-week postpartum doctor appointment in person, and they referred me to mental health services. But within a few weeks, I had stopped eating and I couldn't get out of bed. My parents temporarily moved in with my husband and me to help care for our daughter and ultimately help care for me. I was experiencing suicidal thoughts. And at that point, I began weekly telehealth appointments with my primary care provider in combination with twice weekly appointments with my therapist. I am through the worst of it now, but I really, really mean it when I say that the telehealth visits with my doctor likely saved my life. When I was at the depths of my depression and I couldn't eat, couldn't shower, couldn't get out of bed, driving to a doctor's appointment would have been an impossible hurdle. That's On Point listener Alyssa Watts in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm joined today by Mei Kuang. She's executive director at the Center for Connected Health Policy. And 
I'd like now to turn our focus to one state in particular, because it's going through the decision-making process about the future of telemedicine right now, and that state is Nebraska. So joining us from Omaha is Dr. Leslie Island. Dr. Island is an endocrinologist and medical director of telehealth uh, and patient experience at Nebraska Medicine, which is a major health network in the state with two hospitals, including the state's largest, and more than 9,000 employees. So Dr. Island, welcome to On Point. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm wondering if you could first start by telling us about your personal experience as a physician um, using telemedicine or, or telehealth over the past couple of years. Like, how has it changed your practice? Do you have some stories for us? Absolutely. Um, so I've I've been doing telehealth actually for the last 10 years Um but there were different rules around reimbursement. Uh, prior to the public health emergency in the spring of 2020, somebody had to be in a rural area that was identified as a health profession shortage area, and the patient needed to be located in a healthcare facility, so a clinic or the hospital. And so that's how I've been practicing telehealth for the last decade. Um, but in the spring of 2020, when the public health emergency was declared, I was starting to see people in their homes for the first time, like all of my uh, partners and colleagues across the country. Uh, and over the last three years, I think telehealth has just been absolutely transformational for healthcare. Well, so, I mean, Nebraska being a state with a pretty large rural population, um, can you tell me before telehealth, sometimes in order to come in to, to see you or, or other physicians at Nebraska Medical, how far did some of the p- patients have to travel? So, you know, Nebraska is, uh, is shaped like a, a panhandle. And so Scotts Bluff is, is one of our major cities in the panhandle of Nebraska. And that's about an eight-hour drive to Omaha. Uh, I have many patients from central Nebraska that were routinely driving, you know, two to four hours one way to see me for what's usually a 20-minute return office visit. Wow. Okay. And then also, um, you had told us, uh, uh, you had told our producer prior to to the show that, for example, obviously, agriculture is a huge, uh, huge business in Nebraska that uh, you've seen a lot of farmers on telehealth, and and it's really been particularly helpful to them. Yeah, go ahead. They they love it. Yeah. So uh, I take care of a lot of people who who farm or are uh, employed in some sort of agriculture related industry, and and they love um, being able to come see me in person, maybe in the summer or the winter when they have more downtime. But in the spring and fall during planting and harvest, they're requesting a telehealth visit so they don't have to take an entire day off to come in and see me. I also have a lot of teachers. I have you know special education teachers with type 1 diabetes who now I get to book in my 4 p.m. slot after school, and they don't have to hire a substitute teacher, uh, and their their students benefit from having them there consistently. Mm, okay. So the flexibility um, to help uh, meet the schedules that your patients have and your schedule sounds like a really big advantage here. Um, also, it, does the fact that you're able to use um, telehealth so so effectiveness excuse me so effectively have to do with your particular specialty right because you're in endocrinology I imagine that there's maybe other specialties in which people really do have to come in to see their their doctor 
Absolutely. I think every specialty has handled this differently, but I also think that you would be surprised at the number of specialties um, that are using telehealth to some extent in their practice. Um, I know our neurosurgeons will schedule a telehealth visit if somebody just needs uh, a visit to go over the results of a follow-up MRI. And if there's been no change, maybe in your pituitary mass over the last year and clinically you're feeling fine, that can be a telehealth visit because we're able to, to transfer all of the images done in rural, communi uh, rural communities across the state into our viewing system. So we're able to look at the images, we're able to talk to the patient, and that's really the focus of, of many surgical follow-up visits. Mm, okay. So, I mean, here's a simple but important question. Do you feel as if, it, uh, as if telehealth has been able to help you provide effective uh, medical care to your patients? I do. I, I think when a provider, when a clinician offers telehealth to somebody and the patient accepts, that double checkpoint has turned out to be pretty accurate in terms of the telehealth visit being amenable to the specific diagnosis. Okay. May Kwong, let me turn back to you um, and get your view on this. I mean, what does the evidence show about how well telehealth works or how effective it is? There's very strong evidence to show that is effective and that it works. Now, you know, uh, to echo something that Dr. Island touched upon, though, it, it is going to differ from case to case and patient to patient. You may have two patients who present with the same condition, but for whatever reason, one patient might be better suited to using telehealth and the other one may not be for, for a variety of reasons. Um, it really, when we look at policy for telehealth, what you probably hear from the majority of telehealth advocates is that it, we're not asking for telehealth to be able to be used for every single case because it's not going to be appropriate for every single case. But we want the ability there for the provider, along with like the patient, to decide when it's best to use telehealth or when it's appropriate to use telehealth because they are the two parties in that particular situation who have the most information to make that decision and not have policies that limit them to just like these very sort of narrow scenarios in which they can use telehealth when it can be used more widely. Okay. So, Dr. Island, right now, we, we wanted to focus on Nebraska because, as I mentioned earlier, there is a bill pending uh, uh, in the Nebraska state legislature that could set some rules, longer-term rules, for telemedicine in the state. So, right now, what are you concerned about what, what could change and, and, the, and the need that's, uh, excuse me, driving the need for this bill? So... Right now, uh, actually last summer, our largest private payer for our health system started paying 50% for telehealth visits compared to what they reimburse for an in-person visit. And so over the last nine months, we're seeing the effects of those lower reimbursement rates for telehealth, and it's making us concerned that this is a modality of care that we may not be able to continue to offer to all of our patients. Okay, so that largest private insurer being Blue Cross Blue Shield of Nebraska. Correct. Okay. And so they were paying only 50%, but were they paying um, an equal reimbursement rate for mental health care? Yes. So in 2021, there was a bill, a similar bill proposed uh, for full payment parity for all types of visits. Uh, and that did not pass. But what ended up passing was payment parity for behavioral health. So Blue Cross is paying full parity because they have to uh, for behavioral health visits, but 50% for everything else. 
Okay. But so right now, um, are you still receiving uh, payment parity for non-behavioral health services? Uh, not at this time. For, for that oh. specific payer, for Blue Cross, it's, it's 50%. Okay, got it. And so the hope is, is that what would happen with with this bill then? So this new bill, LB 256, would ensure full payment parity for all all visits for all private payers in our state. Okay. And, and can you just tell me a little bit more about what your argument is for that? Sure. So I think there's there's now a, a large amount of, of high quality data over the last three years showing that outcomes uh, when people are seen via telehealth over in-person care are very similar. Uh, and, and patients do well when uh, they get to make the choice in how they, they receive that care. Okay. Mei Kwong, um, give us your view about uh, the the drive for payment parity for, for telehealth. Uh, again, it seems like there's a big variation across the board in this country, state to state. But is it something that uh, you and the Center for Connected Health Policy, would you like to see it be sort of more of a, of a constant uh, rule across the country? Well, for one thing, the, the Center, as I uh, said earlier, we are a resource center, so we don't necessarily take a position on any type of bills or particular policies. We do education and we do um, provide resources for folks on understanding what those policies are. Now, I have been in discussions where I have heard both sides of the argument. Those like um, Dr. Island touched upon for payment parity have said that they are Providers and practitioners are using the the same knowledge, same experience, same skills they would do if they had provided the service in person. There's, as she said, there is a substantial evidence to show it is as good and in some cases better care than perhaps in person. So they they should get paid the same amount if the service had been provided in person. Then you have the other side the other side of the argument from from folks who perhaps say that the payment should be less in that, you know, since this is telehealth, you have less overhead than you would have mm. had you provided the service in person and that you don't have to pay for like a brick and mortar type of um, type of expenses like you would have if you were seeing patients in like a building of some sort or in your office. Uh, that one, I think, you know, they may not understand that even if you're using telehealth, there are some resources you are still expending. For example, you're paying for connectivity that can get expensive in certain areas, especially if you're in a rural area. Um, you may be paying like a high a high amount of money for that. There is some equipment involved and it's it, you're still expending resources. So it's not like mm -hmm. you're not expending resources when you're using telehealth. But those are some of the arguments for and against that I've heard for payment parity. Well, we actually um, heard from a listener who um, was sharing some of those same arguments, uh, May, that you just laid out. So this is Wes Bear from Santa Cruz, California, who's skeptical of telehealth. And he told us it seems too expensive for the quality of care he receives. I work for a small district and I have a high deductible PPO, which translates into significant out-of-pocket health care expenses. The idea that a five-minute visit over the phone or Zoom would cost 500 or more dollars is absurd. 
It's another clear example that our capitalist healthcare system is broken for patients. The corporations benefit and force doctors to charge astronomical premiums. The lack of specialists, dermatology in this case, forces providers to use telemedicine. It feels like a scam. How can a skin doctor or other specialists prescribe remedies over the phone? Dr. Island, I'm wondering what your response is to that. You know, I would say that gentleman is more than welcome to come in to a clinic and have an in-person visit if that's his choice. All of my patients are welcome to come and see me in person. But I, I feel like when it requires the same level of expertise and knowledge and the same amount of time, I think that should have equivalent reimbursement. Mm, okay. So I have to say we did reach out to the Nebraska Insurance uh, Federation that represents insurers uh, across the state. They declined to join us uh, in person, but they did respond to several questions that we sent to them via email. Um, and we asked them, first of all, if they supported uh, this bill, LB-256, which would uh, require payment parity. And they said that they do not. Um, and their concerns were, uh, among their concerns were the following, that requiring payment parity for telehealth could result in higher premiums and higher out-of-pocket costs for health care. And they were also concerned that uh, telehealth payment parity, interestingly, could lead to a further concentration of medical providers in urban areas in, um, in Nebraska. Dr. Island, your, your thoughts on that? You know, I I feel differently. I feel like um, the rural primary care providers that I collaborate with in rural Nebraska like having uh, access to specialty care via telehealth because many times they are trying to get their patients to see a specialist for something that they are not comfortable managing. And those patients are declining because they are unable to drive and take an entire day off work, an entire day off of their caregiving responsibilities. And so to be able to have a specialty visit via telehealth actually is helpful for the rural PCPs. Mm. Uh, May, can, can you just talk to me a little bit more about that, that first concern that the Nebraska Insurance Federation laid out, that um, they see greater use of telehealth and payment parity as possibly leading to higher premiums because more people would be accessing the healthcare system? You know, it, it's interesting um, that that's a concern that's like echoed by a lot of payers, both and and some policymakers that if you make telehealth more widely accessible, that there will be overutilization or like a, a skyrocketing utilization of it. But what we saw during the pandemic itself, which mind you, during COVID, during the public health emergency, we had the most open telehealth policies and reimbursements ever. And what we saw in the data, and and it was practically everywhere, is that you saw a spike at the beginning of the pandemic when everybody pivoted towards telehealth. That was to be expected. But then you saw utilization drop. And the policies did not change. The policies were still open. They were still allowing for use. But you saw saw a drop. So if you, if you do expand the policies, I'm not necessarily sure you're actually going to see more people utilize it like to, to a greater extent. It's just going to be another choice there for people to be able to access it. Mm. Well, we're getting some response uh, on social media. On Twitter, Teresa says, God forbid people have access to care and CEOs make a few hundred thousand less than the billions they make annually. Well, this hour we are talking about the sort of patchwork quilt of telemedicine in the United States, especially as the pandemic public health emergency winds down. What's the future for this kind of care uh, in this country? We'll have more when we come back. This is On Point.
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're talking about the future of telehealth or telemedicine in this country, especially as that pandemic health emergency winds down. Is it going to be easier or harder for you to access telemedicine depending on where you are in the United States? And we've heard from a lot of you about this issue because there was such a huge growth in telehealth uh, over the past three years. Here, for example, is David Galbraith, a psychotherapist in Havertown, Pennsylvania. It can be frustrating when there's internet connection issues, when someone's trying to do uh, their therapy session in the car or or out of the house, or even in Wi-Fi, you know, that, that connection issue is can be quite tough, which makes me wonder about how the infrastructure is being taken care of since we've been doing a lot more telehealth sessions. Uh, in-person sessions, I think I only have like 10% of my clients are in-person each week. Um, and I prefer in-person sessions because I think it's just a better therapeutic experience when you're in-person. Um, but whatever works best for the client is what I say. And here's Kevin Westra, a gastroenterologist in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And Kevin says in his region, telehealth popularity is actually waning, partly because doctors are not getting equally reimbursed. The payment has gone away and people are now coming back to the offices, so it's really not used much in our area any longer. There were some electronic glitches from time to time, either on our end or the patient's end, but otherwise I thought the process went very smoothly. One last thing I'll say, in many states, if you don't have a state license for wherever the patient is located, I cannot give medical advice or charge for telehealth. So that's a licensing issue that Kevin brings up there at the end. I'm joined today by May Kwong. She's executive director for Connect uh, for the Center for Connected Health Policy. And Dr. Leslie Island joins us as well. She's an endocrinologist and medical director of telehealth and patient experience at Nebraska Medicine. Um, and Dr. Island, I suppose I should ask you, if payment parity can't be achieved in Nebraska, I mean, specifically regarding uh the, the state's largest insurer, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Nebraska, do you think you would start having to reduce the number of telehealth visits you can offer to people? That's what I'm absolutely worried about. Uh, and I'm, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, not the one that is going to have to make that decision. Uh, you know, the number one priority is care, taking care of our patients. But we need to acknowledge that this is a very difficult time financially for our health system and many health systems across the country. And so we need to balance our investments in care with the reimbursements that we are able to receive from providing that care. And we need to be mindful 
of the incentive structure the reimbursements create. Because if we as clinicians are paid more for in-person visits during a difficult, a very difficult financial time, we need to be mindful about the impact that that will have on health systems and what they choose to focus on. And there's really not a great reason for that focus to be on telehealth if the reimbursement is lower during this time. Okay, so May, let me turn back to you because the this issue of how much does it cost? Will it increase the cost of uh, of premiums, the cost of care? You know, like will it just add to our already expensive healthcare system? Obviously, is is one of the core questions here. But how is it that people are that insurers or even let's talk about Medicare? They're going about making that determination, right? Because as far as I understand, does does Medicare just sort of look at uh, cost in the immediate next twelve months or so, and and if that's the case, how do we factor in the possibility that with greater access uh, to care through telehealth, that perhaps that might reduce costs down the line if people are able to stay healthier? Well, that's been the problem with the way policy has been made in this country, both on the state and the federal level, is when you do something like the Nebraska bill, when you push that through legislation, it will most likely be sent to a finance department or finance committee for them to score it. So basically to put a price tag, how much is this going to cost if this law passes, if this bill passes and becomes law? And they look at the immediate cost. They look at, oh, okay, so this is going to make telehealth more accessible. We think 5,000 more people are going to access the system. That's going to be $10 a person. So that's $50,000. That's a cost to the system. They're not looking at the future years of saying, well, we may pay 5000 or 50000 this year, but we're saving on um, 100 people most most likely or possibly not uh, having a stroke, which is going to be a greater cost on the system. So that's not factored into the calculations when you're doing policies and you're score, what they call scoring a bill, basically putting a price tag on the bill on what it would cost in the system. So that has been part of the problem definitely in the past when trying to get telehealth legislation passed is, yes, it is possibly going to co- be an immediate cost on the system, maybe for that first year, but you're you're likely saving, and a lot of evidence shows this, you're likely saving a lot more money down the road because you are improving the health of people and they are not then taxing the system with more expensive conditions later on. But so does, does uh, the federal government via Medicare or Medicaid also have that sort of short-term actuarial table, or are they able to look at um, sort of more long-term costs or benefits? Um, when they're scoring a bill on the federal level, yes, it's it goes through the Congre- Congressional Budget Office. They score it. And I've, I have seen many federal telehealth bills introduced, and there's usually like a, a pretty large price tag on them saying, well, if we expand this in Medicare, this is going to cost so many million do- uh, dollars. And they're looking at that first-year cost. They're still looking at that first year cost. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this seems to be then kind of a pervasive problem in healthcare in general, right? If if the federal government and private insurers are making decisions based on what they'll cover or how much they'll reimburse on a such a short time span when of course um, you know, health benefits might come much later down the line. I mean, it, what can we do to change that, May? Because it seems like making a, a decision based on a very narrow data set, actually. 
It is. And I will say what has helped with the pandemic is that I think there's been a little bit more openness in looking at downstream savings. That's if you're focusing it in on that dollar amount. So there has been a little bit of shift, definitely on the federal level. I've seen, I can't speak to Nebraska on whether, you know, the, the, the state legislature is doing that, but definitely on the congressional level, on the federal level, I've seen a little bit more openness to looking at things like that, as opposed to just immediately you get, you get a price tag because um, they've scored the bill this way. Uh, what, what, everybody, everyday people of the general public can do is definitely engage with your policymakers more. Um, I think there's still some hesitancy around telehealth by some folks that we heard like one of your listeners, you know, raise that. So to, to educate them more and let them know like what has been the impact on you, um, policymakers, lawmakers, they like to hear from their constituents and know what direct impacts has something had on them. So I think it's very important if you have a story to share like that and you really want to see telehealth continue to be used more widely or more available, definitely talk to your policymakers or lawmakers about that, both on the federal and the state level, and share your story with them. Mm-hmm. Well, um, insofar as stories go, we did, as I keep saying here, many of them from On Point listeners. So I want to share another one. This is Loretta Tannenbaum who lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and Loretta has multiple sclerosis, or MS, the chronic disease of the central nervous system. And Loretta and her husband, Warren, who is also her caregiver, told us that before telehealth was as widespread as widespread as it is now, they used to have to take hours out of their day to drive to her doctor's appointments in person. And Loretta currently uses a wheelchair, so the process was not an easy one. of MS patients have pain. You're one of them. Yeah, I'm the one with the pain, right. So sitting in the car, I need to elevate my legs. Yeah, there's a, I call it a dance we have to do to try to get Loretta from point A to point B with as little discomfort and pain as possible. You know, the transfer Uh, of her from the wheelchair to the stair chair to the vehicle, the drive down to Shepherd Center, which is anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour, waiting a half hour in advance of the appointment, then going to the appointment and then getting her back to the home with possible traffic and everything else. The whole process would take minimum of three hours. And the beauty of the telehealth is while I might help her set up the appointment. Occasionally I'll sit in. It's when the appointment begins and usually 30 minutes later, it's over. It just made my life much easier. That's Loretta Tannenbaum and her husband, Warren, from Atlanta, Georgia. And over on social media, we've got uh, listeners, including Michelle in Kentucky, who says, I am a mental health practitioner and we have seen telehealth break down many barriers to treatment. I would hate to see telehealth eliminated and these many barriers come back into play. But on the other hand... Listener Janet in Iowa says, as a retired family practice physician, I'm concerned that health conditions potentially could be missed without hands-on evaluation. So, Dr. Island, let me turn back to you on that one as our practicing physician here. What do you think about what Janet has said? 
Well, I, I think a component of that is true, which is why I think the hybrid model is is most effective here, right? I, I want to have the ability to continue to see all of my patients in person and use telehealth intermittently based on patient choice. Okay. So, um, Mary, uh, sorry, May, I, I thought I had read or heard someplace that um, when telehealth spread rapidly over the past couple of years, that perhaps we inadvertently also uh, just repeated a theme in American healthcare, which is uh, disparate access to care, that in a sense, some of the places that were more urban and more connected were able to turn around and do telehealth better and more frequently, but places that were less connected had significant trouble uh, or were able to do it more slowly. Did you see that same disparity in your analysis? There are definitely disparities, but I wouldn't necessarily call them urban and rural disparities. I think um, urban locations had just as many issues as rural locations. And sometimes rural locations were better suited because before the pandemic, a lot of telehealth was being used in rural communities because a lot of, again, a lot of the policies, a lot of the funding pre-COVID-19 was geared more toward you, rural communities being able to access telehealth. So you actually had like some telehealth programs built up in the rural areas as opposed to urban areas. Where probably I think most people are thinking of is like there may have been issues with connectivity, that it was probably mm-hmm. more widely available in urban regions as opposed to rural regions. And that is definitely a significant factor because you are going to have more trouble most likely in um, rural areas. That doesn't necessarily mean that urban urban dwellers, people in, who live in urban areas, don't have issues with connectivity as well. And that's not necessarily because the infrastructure isn't there, but you have people who may not be able to afford that connectivity. So there's like a, a, a lot of different issues that um, contribute to potential disparities when you're talking about telehealth. There was definitely some of that there. The connectivity was a big issue, but also that um, digital literacy impacted mm. it as well, too, in that, you know, I said earlier that a lot of people before the pandemic didn't know what telehealth was. They got a crash course in it, but then did anybody give them a crash course in, like, how do you use it? I mean, that was actually forced upon like people like Dr. Island, the practitioner to like work those, those patients through it, like lead them through using telehealth, or in some cases, they maybe they had a family member who was able to do that. That also impacts like the accessibility of telehealth. It's just not the connectivity. It's just not the access to equipment. There's also the digital literacy and that can impact different populations, whether you're Mm -hmm. um, English proficient or if you're a senior or, you know, for whatever reason, if you have a disability, that is sometimes overlooked, I think, by folks. And like if you have a certain a particular type of disability, telehealth may not work for you at all or you need to make certain accommodations for them as well. Yeah. Well, so Dr. Island, um, just so that listeners know, once again, we did contact Blue Cross Blue Shield of Nebraska to see if they would join us. Um, they declined too. Um, and again, the Nebraska Insurance Federation declined to join us live. But as I said, they did respond to some of our questions over email. And one of the things they said, and we just got a little bit of time here, Dr. Island, is that payment parity, they say, would actually prevent insurers from reimbursing providers like you at a higher rate 
for higher levels of care provided during in-person visits. What do you think about that? I don't know that that's my area of expertise, and and that's certainly disappointing to hear them say that. You know, we have, there's just still so many tremendous opportunities around telehealth, around ways to improve digital literacy, internet access, access to connected devices. We haven't had the time to plan for any of this and think proactively. We've had to be so reactive, and a lack of parity would just ensure that this doesn't happen. Hmm. Well, uh, May, just about a minute left to go here. I'm wondering what your last thoughts are on um, this does seem to me like one of those genies already out of the bottle moments and that people have now had several years of experience from the patient perspective with telehealth. Some don't like it, but many do. I'm not quite sure we can get that genie back in the bottle in terms of demand. But so what do you think would need to happen to keep it available uh, for patients who who need it and wanted the most. Well, definitely the policies need to change, and one of the biggest sort of pushes or drivers for that that I think will help both on on the state level is depending on what the federal government does with Medicare. So um, a lot of times. States may follow policies around telehealth that the feds do for Medicare and commercial payers as well. So if the federal government leads with Medicare and making it more accessible that way, we may see more openness on the state level and with commercial payers too. Well, May Kwong, Executive Director at the Center for Connected Health Policy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Leslie Island, endocrinologist and medical director of telehealth and patient experience at Nebraska Medicine. It's been great to have you, Dr. Island. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, and thanks for amplifying this issue. And once again, we did reach out to Blue Cross Blue Shield of Nebraska. They declined to join us, uh, as did the Nebraska Insurance Federation. But uh, as we said, we had some email back and forth with them, and we read some of their uh, their concerns over the course of this hour. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.